Washington, D.C., this is On the Ground. For this month's episode of The F Word on Fascism, Professor Francis Boyle breaks down how the U.S. is destroying international law. We are seeing the United States uh, government destroy the entire edifice of international law, international organizations, international human rights, erecting in horror harsh reaction to the genocidal atrocities of the Second World War, and now we're just pulling out the very foundations. And in continued solidarity with Venezuela's people and Bolivarian revolution, peace activists are occupying the Venezuelan embassy at the invitation of the Venezuelan government. We hear what one Puerto Rican activist has to say about the U.S. attempted coup. It's the revolution not only for Venezuelans, but it's our revolution. We, we need to defend it. It's, it's people all over the world has an investment in this revolution uh, progresses and it's not stifled by the United States. All that and much more coming up. Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And certainly there's no bigger story coming out of D.C. this week than the release of the Mueller report investigating the Trump presidential campaign. And here to help us break it all down is our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. And Gerald, I know that the report is what, like something like three or four hundred pages but I know you've had a chance to start to go through it. So give us your take so far. Well, as you know, a good deal of this report concerns alleged Russian interference in the United States elections of 2016. But the report also suggests that George Papadopoulos, a Trump comrade who did time because of transgressions during that electoral campaign, uh, may have had even closer ties to Israel that have not been fully explored, certainly by the media. We also know that Thomas Barrett, the Arab-American billionaire, who was one of Mr. Trump's closest comrades, has very close ties to Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Uh, that came into play during the Trump inauguration, which was a cesspool of foreign money, not to mention what's going into the Trump Hotel in downtown Washington. And that needs further investigation as well, not to mention uh, Trump's ties to Deutsche Bank, uh, his major financier, whose records have just been subpoenaed by Congresswoman Maxine Waters, that may shed light on why Mr. Trump is so harsh towards Chancellor Merkel of Germany in order to get leverage over his major creditor. There's also been understandable criticism of Attorney General William Barr, but many Democrats just confirmed him a few weeks ago, which is consistent with their practice of confirming conservatives for high office and then complaining about them. Recall that Late Supreme Court Justice and reactionary Antonin Scalia was confirmed by the U.S. Senate 98 to nothing, which meant he got every Democratic vote in the U.S. Senate. The Office of Legal Counsel supposedly says that in terms of indicting Mr. Trump, that that cannot be done as long as he's a sitting president, which means if we push him out of office in November 2020, he can't be indicted. But in any case, that OLC opinion, I think, needs further scrutiny by the legal eagles on the left, because I think it has a number of holes in it. And in any case, uh, we are all eagerly awaiting another report. That's the Inspector General Michael Horowitz report. That is to say, he's the Inspector General of the Justice Department, who's investigating the investigators. That is to say, investigating Comey 
and presumably the Mueller team as well. And I think when we get that report and put the two reports side by side, we might get a fuller analysis of what's happening. Mr. Trump in this report is portrayed as a kind of Goodfellows meets the Three Stooges type of operation that he's running. But I would not discount his gangster orientation. In the New York construction industry, you have to deal with gangsters. We all know that as an Atlantic City casino magnate, he was dealing with organized crime figures all the time. But in any case, the overriding political question is that his base is not crumbling, 63 million strong. It's going to be very difficult to rightly impeach Mr. Trump as long as that's the case. And I think we have to be realistic and realize that one of the reasons his base is not crumbling is because they see him as the best vehicle they have seen in years for actually turning back the clock of progress. Well, the conclusions of the report uh, remain the same, though. The investigation was about whether Trump colluded with Russia to steal the 2016 election. That is true. But as the report also makes clear, you can't believe anything Mr. Trump says. I mean, presumably in his written responses, he lied to the Mueller team. He encouraged his comrades to lie to the Mueller team. And when there are so many lies in the air, it's very difficult to ascertain what the actual facts are, which is one of the reasons I must confess that as a historian and as an analyst, I'm waiting for this second Horowitz report before I come to any firm conclusions. Okay, fair enough. Now, on the foreign policy front, the Trump administration also made news this week with John Bolton's very hawkish speech attacking Nicaragua, Cuba, and Venezuela. And also, Mike Pompeo announced a new policy that would allow Cuban patriots here in the United States to bring lawsuits against corporations operating on property seized during the Cuban Revolution and nationalized. And so there was actually quite a response from, you know, some U.S. allies who are doing business in Cuba, maybe on these properties. But what's your take on this latest announcement and move by Pompeo? Well, I would hope that Ottawa and London would authorize lawsuits against the United States after property of Canadians and British people were seized after 1776. Certainly Canada and the EU, European Union, are upset with this latest maneuver by the Trump team. I should also mention in passing that Prince Charles was just in Havana a few weeks ago And I interpreted that as an indicator of the foiling of this dream of a British-U.S. pact targeting the European Union if Brexit is completed. In any case, uh, Cuban baseball players are going to be deprived of opportunity to play in the United States as well as a result of this latest Trump maneuver, which means depriving baseball fans in this country of top of watching top athletes. It's also a blow, ultimately, against uh, Dixie farmers who have been selling agricultural products in Cuba. I assume that that's going to be restricted as well. This attempt to pressure Cuba in order to pressure Venezuela, it seems to me, is not going to work very well. And it also helps to expose and reveal that Washington has painted itself into a corner 
in its attempt to overthrow and destabilize the Maduro regime. And so now they're flailing about, putting pressure on Cuba, hoping that that will do the trick. So last week we talked about the overthrow of longtime Sudanese leader al-Bashiri and then some temporary military people stepping into the seat and then they left. So what's happening in Sudan and it's, it does it look like the people will be able to, I guess, form a, their own type of democracy? Well, what's happening in Sudan in part is the last chapter of the Cold War. Recall that when Mr. al-Bashir first came to office in the 1980s, he was more or less embraced by Washington because Sudan has the characteristic of having one of the most significant communist parties on the African continent outside of South Africa. And he was seen as a bulwark against radicalism in the Sudan. Recall that he gave sanctuary to Osama bin Laden at a time when Osama bin Laden was playing ball with Washington with regard to destabilizing progressive forces in Afghanistan. But now it appears that the jig is up. Mr. al-Bashir has lost his utility. The question is, will he be dispatched to an international criminal court to stand trial? Somehow I doubt it, not least because the ICC has lost credibility throughout Africa, uh, particularly when their prosecutor was refused a visa to enter the United States just a few days ago and only was able to get to the United Nations, which was her ultimate goal, because of a special arrangement, diplomatic arrangement with the UN. One of the questions right now is, will the protesters blink first or will the military junta blink first? The protesters are still in the streets. They feel that they want to uh, avoid an Egyptian-style solution to this problem. Recall that uh, with the Arab Spring of 2011, so-called, that longtime leader Hosni Mubarak was dislodged. Then Mohamed Morsi of the, Muhammad, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood took power. Then he was forced out by uh, General al-Sisi, who now pledges to stay in office to 2030 or 2034. The Sudanese protesters want to avoid that kind of Egyptian-style remedy to their pressing social needs, and I dare say that they will not be the first to blink. Well, we will certainly keep an eye and ear to what is happening in Sudan and Cuba and Venezuela and what's happening right here at home. I will actually be on the ground in Cuba for the May Day celebration marking the 60th anniversary of the Cuban Revolution, and I'll be able to bring back our own reports with the voices of the Cuban people. I've been speaking to our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn, author and activist. Thank you for joining me today, Gerald. Thank you. Welcome to DC. You know we got after you In the 2020 presidential race, 
Senator Bernie Sanders defied all expectations with a town hall appearance this week on the right-wing cable outlet Fox News. During the hour-long show, Sanders was interrupted several times by enthusiastic applause as he laid out his plans for Medicare for All, raising the minimum wage, and the Green New Deal. Is we have a lot more in common than most people think we do. All right, poll after poll. Should we raise the minimum wage to a living wage? Yes. Should we rebuild our crumbling infrastructure? Should we make sure that our veterans get the health care that they have earned? All right. Should we make sure that we do not cut Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid? Should we give huge tax breaks to billionaires? You know, that's how most people feel. (laughs) According to the Nielsen ratings, Sanders' Monday night town hall on Fox News is the most watched town hall of 2019. And on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, entrepreneur and presidential candidate Andrew Yang held a press conference that featured his call for a universal basic income of $1,000 a month for each American citizen because, he said, so many jobs are being lost and will be lost to increase automation and the use of artificial intelligence. What would you all do with $1,000 a month? Where would that money go? It would stay in your local communities. You would end up spending it on food, bills, health care, the occasional night out, and a lot of that would circulate over and over again in the towns and neighborhoods you live in. This is a trickle-up economy from people, families, and communities up. The climate activists of Extinction Rebellion also took to the streets of D.C. this week, occupying outside the offices of the Republican National Committee to protest the RNC's receiving huge donations from polluting fossil fuel companies. One protester encouraged passersby to join the action. We're here in front of the Republican National Committee because of the awful role it has played in human history denying climate. They are right in the middle of climate denial, telling the oil companies, go ahead, pump your oil, here's some more drilling rights. The RNC, we're picking the RNC because it is such an awful influence on the, uh, the society we live in. According to Extinction Rebellion, the RNC receives 90% of all fossil fuel donations to politicians, while the Democrats get the remaining 10%. Healthcare workers in D.C. are continuing to mobilize and protest against an agreement to build a new hospital in Ward 8 of the district without the standard certificate of need process that gives the community and hospital employees a voice in the process. In December, the D.C. Council voted to waive the certificate of need process and approve both the new facility and a new patient tower in Foggy Bottom, planned by Universal Health Services and George Washington University Hospital, which is a partner in the deal. The agreement and bill passed by the D.C. Council included an amendment requiring that an academic affiliation with Howard University, which has been longstanding at the current hospital, will continue at the new hospital. Other amendments required a commitment by the city administrator to work with United Medical Center's nurses and healthcare workers to ensure they qualify for positions at the new hospital. 
Also, that GWU Hospital provide an explanation to any UMC worker denied a job at the new hospital and that the majority of current UMC employees be hired there. Now, the amendment doesn't guarantee that all union jobs will transfer to the new hospital, but includes a clause which means that GWU must agree to support a union's attempt to organize the workforce. There's also no guarantee that specialty services like cardiac and cancer care will be offered at the new hospital, requiring Ward 7 and 8 residents to travel 30 to 40 minutes to Foggy Bottom for high-risk services. While it's not yet clear whether GWU will agree to these amendments, the bill and the deal are now on the desk of Mayor Muriel Bowser, and healthcare workers are holding a town hall meeting on Saturday, April 27th from 2 to 4 p.m., at United Medical Center, 1310 Southern Avenue in Southeast D.C. Jeffrey Folks, a technician in the sterile processing department at UMC, where he has worked for 37 years, recently answered questions for On the Ground, and he started by explaining why the current hospital deal is still not good enough. The concerns have not been addressed, and the legislation is insufficient. The issues are access to quality health care for the residents in Ward 7 and Ward 8 who have some of the greatest health care needs in the country. Another issue is the lack of transparency. The city council and the mayor's office have not involved or informed the community on what services will be provided at the new hospital. Also, ensuring that the hardworking employees of the United Medical Center, who have kept the hospital open for decades, are treated fairly as the transition to the new hospital begins. So uh, the current legislation does not address these issues. So it doesn't sound like you want Mayor Bowser to sign the existing legislation. Well, we want the mayor to sign legislation that would address the concerns surrounding the quality patient care, transparency of the process, and treating hard-working United Medical Center workers with respect. It's unheard of that the union contracts wouldn't follow to the new hospital. So a lot of the concern seems to be around the fact that the certificate of need process, which would have allowed the community to have more input, the workers to have more input, was not implemented, and that this legislation bypassed that process. So is it still possible to have the certificate of need process implemented? Is that what you want? That's up to the D.C. City Council. Unfortunately, we waived the process by voting against it. The certificate certificate of need is very important for the delivery of health care in the city. It ensures that proper services are provided where they're needed. So... Are workers at the hospital actively reaching out to elected officials to express these concerns? Yes, uh, we are actively reaching out to the mayor's office, and we are planning a town hall meeting and other events to discuss the health care crisis in D.C. Okay, so what do you want to happen? You know, from your perspective, what is the ideal scenario that would ensure labor rights at the new hospital? We want uh, access to quality health care for the patients who use United Medical Center. We want transparency in the process so the city officials 
provide information necessary to ensure this outcome. And we, the hardworking employees of United Medical Center, want and deserve our union contracts to follow us to the new hospital. City Council members noted that this has always happened in the past, and there is no reason for it not to happen now. Okay, well, we definitely intend to continue covering this story. I've been speaking to Jeffrey Falks, a technician in the sterile processing department at UMC, where he has worked for 37 years. And finally, in culture and media, Chantel James attended a book reading about the environment and filed this report. On Thursday at Politics and Prose, environmentalist Bill McKibben, who has been at the forefront of confronting the realities of climate change for over 30 years now, gave a talk and reading from his most recent work. The book, Falter, Has a Human Game Begun to Play Itself Out, was a catalyst for a discussion between the author and audience about how dire our moment on Earth has become and what critical actions can be taken to allow human life on the planet to continue. We spoke with McKibben about the changes that have to occur in the collective consciousness in order for humanity to move in a sustainable direction. I think that it's going to be, I think it already is happening, and it's a combination of watching Mother Nature educate us in kind of very brutal ways now, listening to the science, and understanding the hope on the other end of things like the Green New Deal. And some combination of those things is going to move us to action. The only question is whether it'll be in time or not. From Northwest D.C., this is Chantal James. And last, a number of community organizations and artists are kicking off a month of solidarity, unity, and goodwill toward the most recent victims of climate catastrophe, the people of Mozambique, Zimbabwe, and Malawi. That happens Tuesday, April 23rd, 6.30 p.m. at Union Temple Baptist Church, 1225 W Street in Southeast D.C. Artists scheduled to perform include Ayana Gregory and Pacifica's own Kaba Soul Singer. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, Professor Francis Boyle breaks down how the U.S. is destroying international law. Stay with us. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Ivarum. And for this month's episode of the F Word on Fascism, we're talking about violations of international law, which usually involve gross violations of human rights as set forth by the United Nations or other world bodies. I've always assumed, at least in response to fascism or tyranny in the past. With me to unpack this topic is Professor Francis Boyle. 
He's a professor of international law at the University of Illinois College of Law. His books include Foundations of World Order, published by Duke University. Welcome to On the Ground, Professor Boyle. Thank you very much for having me on and my best to your listening audience. Well, almost on a weekly basis, news about acts by either the U.S. government or its allies is followed by the phrase that these acts are violations of international law. So just this week, the Trump administration vetoed bipartisan legislation that would have ended U.S. support for the Saudi-led attack on Yemen, which has been declared to violate international law on several fronts, including attacks on civilians, leading to the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people and at least 85,000 children. And it seems to me that, especially since the Iraq war, the U.S. and the North Atlantic military powers have taken the lead in ignoring international law. So what's your take? Well, you're certainly correct about that. As for uh, uh, Trump's latest uh, veto, his argument uh, is preposterous. Uh, He has no authority under the United States Constitution to be waging war against Yemen in violation of the uh, U.S. War war Clause, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution, and uh, helping the Saudis inflict what I would say is outright genocide against the Houthis. And you hit the nail on the head of your program here in what I think is is the nub of the problem, namely the entire edifice of international law, international organizations, uh, international human rights we see today was constructed after World War II and during World War II in significant part by the United States government, starting with President Roosevelt, in reaction to the genocidal horrors of the fascist alliance we fought against during World War II. And that would be Hitler and the Nazis, Mussolini and the fascists, and Tojo and his, uh, his gang of militarists. So that is what is at stake today. We're seeing... Uh, The United States government, not just starting with Trump going back there with uh, Obama, Bush Jr., literally uh, ripping down the entire edifice and undermining it uh, at its very basis. So it's uh, it reminds me a bit of the uh, collapse of the uh, League of Nations in the uh, mid to late 1930s. Uh, before the uh, outbreak of the Second World War, when that legal order was set up in reaction to uh, World War One, and it was attacked by Japan, Germany, and also uh, Italy. Well, there's two things. When you went back through some previous administrations, and the more I thought about what was constructed after World War Two. If part of those rules include that we don't have a right to attack a country that's not attacking us, that's not posing a threat to us, then I guess all the wars uh, from even from Vietnam on have been questionable and have been, I, I assume, put in the category by some as an international crime. That's correct. If you go back and read the Nuremberg Charter Judgment and Principles, that we tried Nazis for, and likewise the uh, Tokyo Tribunal, that we tried the uh, Japanese militarists uh, for, 
Most of the uh, wars that have been fought by the United States government since Vietnam, at least, would qualify as a Nuremberg crime against peace. And that's just not me saying that. You can look at uh, United States Army Field Manual 2710, the laws of land warfare, that is still uh, on the books today as we speak. You can Google it. And toward the end there, uh, I think it might be paragraph 498 or so, it clearly states that a, uh, a crime against peace, a Nuremberg crime against peace, is a war crime for which there is criminal accountability by uh, officials uh, who engage in it. So you are correct. Well, I guess looking at what's happening right now, it's a really dizzying pace. Like every week, like I said, there's something new. So just recently, Trump recognized the Golan Heights as a part of Israel. Then the prime minister of Israel, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, added that he would annex Jewish settlements in the West Bank, which is, you know, part of Palestine, Palestinians land. And this is after he'd already seized Jerusalem as a capital. And of course, during the past year, during the Great March of Return, 200 unarmed protesters in Gaza have been killed, including medics and journalists, and tens of thousands of people wounded. And this year started out with the attempted coup in Venezuela, you know, naming a member of the political opposition as interim president and seizing billions of that country's assets here in the U.S. and I guess encouraging the U.K. to do the same in terms of their bank accounts, Venezuela's bank accounts in London. So I almost don't know where to start. So I just want you to give a give your own legal assessment of where we are and and what can happen, you know, when the world's I guess military power goes rogue like this. I've been working uh, 24-7 just, just to keep up with all the uh, domestic and uh, international law violations and atrocities uh, he and his, his gang of criminals have been involved in. On the uh, uh, Palestinian issue, uh, I have a whole book on that subject. It's called uh, Palestine, Palestinians, and International Law, uh, Clarity Press, if you want to read it. And then as for the Great March of Return, I have another book called uh, The Palestinian Right of Return Under International Law, uh, Clarity Press, that deals comprehensively with these issues. But to get back with the fascist precedent here, yes, uh, Trump recognizing uh, Ill Israel's uh, illegal annexation of the Golan and also of uh, Jerusalem and the threatened annexation of the West Bank violates the Stimson Doctrine of 1933 under U.S. Secretary of State uh, Stimson, and I do discuss this in my book there, uh, Foundations of World Order, that you kindly uh, mentioned. What happened there is when the uh, gang of uh, Japanese militarists invaded China to steal the natural resources of Manchuria, uh, especially uh, their coal, because... Uh, uh, Japan is uh, uh, resource poor, and they needed uh, uh, natural resources to uh, build their empire there uh, in Asia. They set up a puppet state, which they called Manchuko. This is about 1932-33. Uh, 
And the uh, United States government's official response was by Secretary of State Stimson, who said that the United States government would not recognize uh, any legal consequences flowing from the use of force. And that is exactly what Trump has done on Jerusalem, the Golan, and it looks like he very well might do the West Bank in the event that uh, Israel decides to uh, next to West Bank. As for uh, Venezuela, yes, uh, after the uh, Second World War, uh, the United States government pioneered our own security system here in the uh, Western Hemisphere, the Organization of American States. And I deal with the history uh, leading up to that in my book, Foundations of World Order, starting with the uh, first Inter-American Conference of uh, 1897 that we were involved in, and I won't go through the whole history here, but we helped pass the charter of the Organization of American States that is a treaty to which the United States government is a party to. Uh, It was supposed to, and in fact repudiated, uh, the so-called Monroe Doctrine and the uh, Roosevelt Corollary, Teddy Roosevelt, allegedly giving us some uh, right to police the uh, Western Hemisphere. And uh, it expressly prohibited uh, the use of measures, any measures of economic coercion by one American state against another American state. And then second, any uh, measure of political coercion, political change by one American state against another American state, exactly what the Monroe uh, Doctrine and the Roosevelt Corollary were all about. We signed on to this treaty. It was our treaty. And now, of course, we're uh, seeing the Trump administration, Bolton, Pompeo. By the way, Pompeo was by me at Harvard Law School. All he learned there was evil, because after I had left, uh, uh, Harvard Law School became a neoconservative cesspool. But putting that aside, and so uh, we're going back uh, in violation of the OAS charter in our policies uh, against uh, Venezuela. Now Bolton has just threatened uh, Cuba and Nicaragua uh, too. And all these threats and these tactics, uh, the the coercion, both political and economic, are clear-cut violations of that uh, OAS charter. That is a treaty that has received the advice and consent of the uh, United States Senate uh, and is the supreme law of the land under the United States Constitution. So once again, we are seeing the United States uh, government destroy the entire edifice of international law, international organizations, international human rights erected in horror, harsh reaction to the genocidal atrocities of the Second World War, and now we're just pulling out the very foundations, uh, very much like Hitler, Mussolini, uh, Tojo did in the mid to late uh, 1930s. History is repeating itself, uh, only this time we're doing it with our great noble allies like uh, Britain and Israel. Well, you mentioned economics, and one of the things that we've tried to do with this series is talk about the the ways that the government is basically running itself on behalf of corporations. 
And when I guess I look at the Latin America, South America, Central America, and the history of, of corporations like the United Fruit Company or the oil companies there right now that are being, you know, eyed by the Trump administration. Are there other parts of international law outside of the OAS that cover economic crimes? Uh, well, the, it, that's a harder argument to make. But yes, for example, uh, in Venezuela, I think uh, a very strong argument can be made today uh, that uh, what, with all the uh, economic uh, coercion and the political pressure and the threats, uh, this would constitute a uh, crime against humanity uh, in violation of the uh, Rome Statute for the uh, uh, International Criminal Court. Yes, I, I think that argument could be made, yes. So uh, along with that, and I, I didn't want to jump around too much, but I, I realize I'm, you know, I don't have that much time. So in, in terms of our attack on Libya, for example, and the resulting slavery or sla slavery like conditions that have resulted, who has standing to bring a case against the U.S., the NATO and other people who that other nations that attacked Libya? and created the lawlessness there that has resulted in so many people being killed or enslaved. Right. Well, I wrote, wrote a whole book on this, too, called uh, Destroying Libya and World Order, which you, you can read, uh, once again, Clarity Press. And In fact, I did sue the United States and the United Kingdom for Libya at the International Court of Justice uh, over the uh, uh, Lockerbie uh, bombing uh, matter. And as Obama started to attack Libya, uh, I did try very hard to get permission from the Libyan government to sue the United States and, and the NATO states that were bombing Libya. And as you know, uh, murdered about uh, 50,000 Libyans, uh, destroyed Libya uh, as a state turned it into a total catastrophe, which it is today. But I regret to report, but despite my best efforts, I, I could never get that uh, authorization out of, uh, out of Libya. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi went underground and he was incommunicado. So there wasn't much I could do. I, I did try. Yeah, and then he was assassinated by a mob. He was lynched. I mean, he, yeah. he yeah. was uh, captured. He was sodomized with a knife. Then he was murdered, and Mrs. Clinton mimicking uh, Julius, Julius Caesar, the emperor who destroyed the uh, uh, Roman Republic, uh, said, we came, we saw, he died, and then she laughed hysterically. Well, you know, Mrs. Clinton is a psychopath and a war criminal, and uh, I didn't vote for Trump, but I was certainly very happy when Trump beat her. We just start over with a new guy. Uh, that's the way I saw it. So in the time that we have left, I was very disappointed that the International Criminal Court abandoned the inquiry into U.S. war crimes in Afghanistan. And this is after Mike Pompeo, the, the Trump administration, barred admission of a judge from the International Criminal Court from entering the U.S. So if we cannot rely on these international bodies to bring the U.S. into account for these types of crimes, 
What can those of us inside, you know, inside the belly of the beast, as I always say in D.C., what can we do to hold our own government accountable, if, if anything? You know, I just want to uh, file that original complaint uh, against Bush and the rest of them for extraordinary rendition with International uh, Criminal Court as being a crime against humanity, the enforced disappearance of human beings and also their uh, consequent torture. And as you saw last week, the International Criminal Court just caved in to the threats by Trump, Pompeo, and Bolton. So regretfully, I don't think the ICC is going to help us. I don't believe they're going to help the Palestinians. I I had originally advised Palestinian President Abbas uh, to accept the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court But you'll note that both uh, Trump and uh, Pompeo threatened the ICC over Israel as well. So I don't see that uh, happening. So we're really left to our own devices here in the United States. I mean, it's sort of uh, back in the days of the uh, Vietnam War or something like that, where uh, I was a young man uh, opposing that war. And we're just going to have to take to the streets in nonviolent civil resistance, not civil disobedience. We're not disobeying anything. The, the government, the Trump people, the rest of them, they're the criminals. And we're the sheriffs. And make it clear that that this has to stop. And indeed, I've written two books on that, if you're interested, um, Defending Civil Resistance Under International Law. There's a paperback available there in on Amazon, and then an update that was 1987, and then an update, uh, protesting power, uh, war, uh, resistance, and law. That's uh, 2018. That tries to sum up uh, 30 years of my experience of uh, doing these cases. One other suggestion is attributable to the late great Phil Berrigan one of the leaders of the uh, uh, peace movement here uh, in in the United States going back uh, to the Vietnam War with his brother Dan and his wife Liz McAllister. By the way, Liz right now is in jail uh, in Georgia for the uh, Kings Bay Plowshares Resistance uh, Act. And I'm I'm working on that case. I have a declaration in there on behalf of uh, Liz and uh, also uh, the others. But after uh, Phil got out of uh, the federal hellhole he was in, and I, I was involved uh, in, in that, he called me up and uh, he said, uh, you know, Francis, there's, there's so much wars going on now here in the United States. I think we need to organize a national general strike for peace. And I said, yeah, I think that's that's a good idea there, Phil. And uh, he, Phil said, will you go in with me on issuing the uh, declaration for a national general strike for peace? I said, sure, Phil, I'll, I'll be happy to. So uh, Phil said, fine, I'll write the manifesto and then uh, I'll send it to you to get your your input and comments on it, and then we'll put it out. I said, great. Soon thereafter, Phil was uh, diagnosed with the uh, fatal cancer that would kill him. 
what can I say? Fortunately, Phil uh, died at home, uh, surrounded by his family, and, and not in some uh, federal hellhole for crimes against the American Empire. Well, Phil never sent me that revised uh, manifesto, and I'm not Phil Barrett, so I, I didn't pursue the matter. But it does seem to me that this idea comes from Phil Berrigan himself, and we all know who Phil is, and Dan and Liz, uh, going back to their opposition to the Vietnam War and going to jail for that. So I think this is a, another idea that seriously needs to be considered to planning uh, a national day, a general strike uh, for peace. Uh, all over the country and shut the country down on that day. Well, well, I'm thinking about so many of the social justice issues that we cover on the show and the kind of expanding the idea of peace to not only militarism abroad, but also police brutality, the economic warfare against people in this country and just the ways that people want to fight for, you know, climate justice and and so many of the things that uh, certainly a general strike for peace on all those fronts, you know, might be welcomed by a whole lot of people, a broad range of people. Right. I, I think your suggestion for expanding it is a good idea because we're, you know, we're seeing the uh, police basically wage war uh, against uh, the African-American community. We're seeing the plutocracy who runs this country, uh, waging war uh, against the poor, and economic warfare against the poor, and even the uh, middle class. I mean, Chomsky pointed this out in one of his books, that the plutocracy has been waging economic warfare against the American people since Reagan came to power. And Trump just uh, expanded it with his so-called tax cuts, and now they're going after Medicare, Medicaid, and eventually Social Security. So, yeah, I, I, Phil and I just talked about wars abroad, but I think uh, your uh, suggestions to expand it to deal and and look what Trump is is doing to the uh, Latino population, scapegoat right. Latinos down there at the border. That's a crime against humanity. You know, the Muslim travel ban. It was passed. Uh, by his uh, hand-picked fascistic uh, Supreme Court. Uh, the Supreme Court isn't going to say this either. They're, they're all Trump's right-wing, racist, bigoted, reactionary, uh, hand-picked lawyers from the Federalist Society. So they're, they're not going to help us. It's really, as the U.S. Constitution said in, in the preamble, it's up to we, the people here. We're going to have to act, or else we are going to lose this republic. That's for sure. Okay. Well, I think that's the right note to leave it. I've been speaking to Professor Francis Boyle. He's Professor of International Law at the University of Illinois College of Law. His books include Foundations of World Order, published by Duke University Press. And of course, he mentioned many of his other books. Thank you for joining me today, Professor Boyle. Well, thank you for having me on, especially to cover the historical breadth of these issues. It's very important to you know, put what we're facing today within an historical context and, and understand that, you know, in my opinion, we're really at a, uh, an inflection point for our republic. That's for sure. Thank you. 
And finally for today, in continued solidarity with Venezuela's people and the Bolivarian Revolution, peace activists are occupying the Venezuelan embassy located in northwest D.C. at the invitation of the Venezuelan government. On Thursday, Berta Joubert Chechi with the Puerto Rican Tribunal stopped by the embassy to support Venezuela and the vigil being held to protect the embassy. She spoke to Dr. Margaret Flowers of Popular Resistance. We are um, here in the Venezuelan Embassy with uh, Berta Juber Chechi from Puerto Rico. And um, why don't we start out, Berta, why don't you tell us, our uh, watchers, our viewers, what you were doing here today in, in the Washington, D.C. area? Um, we came here to demonstrate against the company called AES that uh, burned coal in Puerto Rico and spread toxic ashes all around the island, particularly in two big places, but uh, all over the island, and has caused many um, illnesses mm -hmm. and, and death, and uh, we want them to stop uh, the yeah. toxic ashes that's contaminating not only the people, but also the, the water, the land, and the air, so it's a big yeah. polluter. So, and tell us why you're holding this particular sign and why I, you're here with us Well, at the I, I really wanted to have the opportunity. I know there is a protection in the embassy and when we need because it's, it's the revolution not only for Venezuelans, but it's our revolution. We, we need to defend it. It's, it's people all over the world has, has an investment in that this revolution uh, progresses and it's not stifled by the United States. So I wanted to show, particularly because being from Puerto Rico, the governor of Puerto Rico in such a submissive action um, to grant favors from the White House mm -hmm. uh, person, uh, offered Puerto Rico to be a platform for staging uh, so-called humanitarian aid, we say we, we don't want Puerto Rico to be a platform for invasion of Venezuela. And and it doesn't, uh, the majority of Puerto Rico are opposed to it. And there have been demonstration opposing it and, and in solidarity with Venezuela. So I wanted to show, you know, one of the uh, placards that we take, uh, I'm, I'm living right now in Philadelphia, so we have demonstrations on, on solidarity with Venezuela, and you know, we have this don't and use Puerto Rico against Venezuela. How do people in Puerto Rico feel about the U.S. providing humanitarian aid to Venezuela when they didn't actually ask for it, and we have a situation in Puerto Rico, an ongoing situation? Well, not only that, you know, when Maria occurred, uh, Venezuela What's Maria? The, um, the Hurricane Maria mm -hmm. in September 20th, um, 19, uh, uh, 2017. And um, Venezuela sent a, a, a shipload of diesel, which was, that, that was like a lifeline for Puerto Rico because there was no electricity and it was just generated by by the generators that the diesel mm -hmm. and because of the United States uh, we are a colony we were not allowed same thing that Cuba sent a, 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 um, a clinic with mm -hmm. um, all the staff and and same thing you know yeah. we you were weren't allowed, allowed to accept the no 
the offer of aid from Venezuela? Nor from Venezuela, nor from Cuba, wow. only from the U.S., and the U.S. didn't help. Mm -hmm. So... And now your governor wants to give, quote, aid to Venezuela when people still haven't been made whole from the, uh, the hurricane Correct. riot. Yeah. And when people still have blue roofs. Talk blue, about almost the blue roof. To, the blue roof is, um, of course, you know, the, the um, wind and rain uh, blew the, uh, the rooftops. So there are many houses that were given blue roof, it's these blue tarps mm -hmm. um, given by FEMA, some by FEMA, some people had to buy them themselves or other organizations provided for them because FEMA didn't really help what they were supposed to help. Mm -hmm. But there are still people living under uh, rooftops that are just with blue tarps. Wow. And here is a governor that doesn't care about its people, but that says that, does he care about Venezuela? He doesn't care about Venezuelans. You know, this Political. is pure hypocrisy, yeah. and this is a, 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 you know, a partnership to invade Venezuela. That's really what it is, and we oppose it because Puerto Rico has been used to launch wars against its neighbor, and even to practice during the Iraq War and others. You know, this, that's what Vieques, the little island of uh, Puerto Rico is an archipelago. So it's like there is this little island called Vieques that was used by the U.S. Navy to practice, and they still hold places uh, in Vieques. So, um, but it has always been used to launch invasions. So we say we don't want anymore, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are in solidarity with Venezuela, Venezuela and Puerto Rico, and and, and you see here this, you know, it's like one uh, one wing is Venezuela, the other wing is Puerto Rico, and we're both Caribbean, because it's like the Caribbean part of, of Venezuela. And so it's very important for Puerto Rico to be um, part of the movement in solidarity with Venezuela. And, and the governor of Puerto Rico does not represent us, does not. Yeah. So what do you want our listeners to know the most? What should they be doing right now about this situation? They should be letting everybody know what the United States really want and defend Venezuela. We're not asking that they agree or not agree with it, but Venezuela has the right to have the system that they want. And nobody else out of Venezuela has any right, any right to interfere with that. So we ask that people defend Venezuela and defend the right to exist as the Venezuelan, Bolivarian Venezuela wish, and not to obey the dictates of the Cong U.S. Congress or U.S. Um, media that demonizes Venezuela. The terrorism is right here in the White House with representation in Congress. It's not in, 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 the, in, in, in Venezuela. And Guaido is really a stooge of the CIA of, of the United States. So and what should they know about Puerto Rico? What do Puerto Ricans want people in the U.S. to support? The independence for Puerto Rico. Que viva! Que viva Puerto Rico Libre y que viva Venezuela Bolivariana. Gracias. And that will do it for today's show. I want to thank my guest, Francis Boyle, and my contributors, Gerald Horn and Chantel James. 
The music we play this hour included Welcome to D.C. by Mambo Sauce and Gord Guanco by Women of the Calabash. Our theme song is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the nation's capital on Pacifica Radio. You can contact us, support us, and partner with us, and listen to all of our current and past shows on the website we maintain, onthegroundshow.org. We're on Facebook and Twitter under On the Ground Show, and we are on iTunes and Google Play under the title WPFW On the Ground. We're inviting listeners to join us in celebrating On the Ground's fifth birthday. We debuted May Day, May 1st, 2014. So, May 1st, 2019, we turned five, and we are having a series of special birthday markers culminating with a celebration May 19th, 5 p.m., at the new Anacostia Busboys and Poets, 2004 Martin Luther King Jr. Avenue in Southeast D.C. Get tickets on Eventbrite, Facebook, and on our website. That's May 19th, 5 p.m., at the new Busboys and Poets Anacostia. Stay tuned. I'm Esther Averam. Until next time, keep raising your voice. Peace.